everyone, welcome back to the next part in our series with Professor Michael Meyer from the University of Michigan. We talk about instrumentation, the current search for exoplanets in the universe, and the decadal survey held in astronomy. If you're new to our podcast, make sure to check out the last part in the series from last Friday, and the final third part will be uploaded next Friday. Hope you enjoy. So the probability of biochemical origin of life in the universe. Um, that, so, I mean, be before we get there though, presumably there's a massive work, there's going to be massive work in improving our means, our methods of detection, our observational methods, our statistical methods, our computational methods. Um, and I know that, <clears throat> and you briefly mentioned that you were interested in, in instrumentation. Um, could you kind of explain how the field of instrumentation and this, this, particularly the part that you're involved in, has evolved with, uh, with the advent of the computer technological era. Because I think, at least from our perspective as students, computers have enabled a lot of things to come down to, and to be far more accessible by everyone. But on the other hand, I assume that computers have also enabled the, 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 the upper ends of science to progress faster and and better than they would have before. So could you kind of explain your, your role in instrumentation and all of that kind of stuff? Okay, so um, instrumentation, when I started graduate school, um, and maybe it was even unique for that time, but I had one of my supervisors was very much a tabletop experiment person. I don't consider myself an instrumentalist in the way that I consider Professor Monnier, John Monnier in our department, uh, one of these world-leading experts in, in his specific technique, and my old supervisor was like that. I, I, I joke that he could go into a garage, basically all by himself, and come out with like an astronomical instrument, because he could do the wiring, he could do the electronics, he could do the optics, he could do the computer mm -hmm. programming. I mean, he could do everything. I'm not like that. I'm much more of a, a tinkerer. I like to come in and recognize uh, a new application or an augmentation to some other existing technology or instrument that can enhance. And the reason I, I'm really passionate about that is because uh, I really want my field to make rapid progress towards the answers that I am just, ah! I mean, the thing that drives me is I right. just wanna know the answer. I just can't stand not knowing the answer. And so if I can help make a little widget that will get us closer to the answer faster. I also tell people at heart, I'm just basically lazy. So if you told me I had to take a little pebble and like push it up my nose with my nose up a mountain for like 10 years, or, you know, you could go into this laboratory and make this pebble nose pushing widget and it could happen <laughs> in like a week. I'm like, I'm totally going to go do that, you know, because right. I can't wait. I mean, patient. So, um, okay. So instrumentation, when I started, my professor was really good at just enabling us to, here's a detector. Here's a point four meter telescope, um, design a spectrograph for it. Okay, so then you scratch your head and I'd open a bunch of textbooks. And this is again, a thing where I learn by doing. So in the last 20 years, a lot of our educational innovations have come from recognizing that inquiry-based discovery is an important tool for you to absorb deeply in your intuition, physical intuition and your, your worldview concepts of physics and math that you're learning at a lecture in a classroom. And that was very natural to me because I did most of my learning 
arguing with my fellow students in the late night laboratory study session or in a laboratory actually building things with my hands. That's where I really mm -hmm. got it. So those things resonate with me, which is why I love teaching astronomy 361 so much in our department. Right. Um, so in the early days, it was much easier for instrumentalists to build their own things. They didn't need that much money. Even back then, it was a lot of money, but $100,000, you could kind of build a camera for that in the 80s and 90s. Nowadays, as we get up to 8-meter telescopes, 6.5-meter telescopes, the instrument budgets are millions. I just had a grant uh, approved for a border that to build a new camera for Magellan. And then if things start getting that expensive and, and space is even a whole nother thing. I mean, the, the instrument budget all, roughly for the near infrared camera for the James Webb Space Telescope is about $130 million. So what does that mean? That means I'm not gonna be able to take a first year graduate student and just throw them into the lab with a screwdriver and a hammer and say, yeah, go adjust that thing, you know? Because all, all right. of a sudden, you know, they put the screwdriver through the detector and $130 million goes away. So as things got more complicated, number one, you could not be a, a master of everything. It's just impossible. And things got so expensive that the, the nervousness and the professionalism and the management of having to navigate a project that complicated and expensive made it less accessible for students to get their hands dirty in the lab with a project. So that's unfortunate. Um, big expensive projects also take a very long time. So um, one example I think uh, uh, you might be interested to hear about is the camera for the James Webb Space Telescope. I started going to meetings and serving on a committee to design or at least uh, discuss the attributes of instruments for that telescope in 1997. And we finally wrote a proposal. Uh, I was part of two proposal teams to build or, or ended up being two part of two instrument teams in 2003, I think, we were awarded the contract. And so it, it takes 10, 15, 20 years to build an instrument that complicated. And frankly, the near-infrared camera, NearCam, uh, which is being led by the University of Arizona by my wonderful colleague, uh, Marsha Riki, she is an absolute, she's like John Monnier, she's one of these, you know, real world leaders in her field. And we hosted her uh, for the Mueller Prize uh, uh, right before the shutdown here at U of, U of M. Um, she's fantastic and she led that whole project. She almost did it all by herself, but she worked with industrial partners. So we worked with Lockheed Martin. And it certainly wasn't the case that we got to go into the lab and play with little bits of that instrument. But um, I was there as a kind of an advisor on for much of the science that we wanted to do and the scientific requirements that the instrument had to make in order to fulfill its promise and its dream. Um, and that project took a very long time and, and a project like James Webb in particular um, was unique. You know, this is a, a proper use of that word. I, don't, I think the astronomy community has certainly never had a segmented telescope that needed to deploy on orbit where astronauts were not gonna come like Hubble and, and revive it or refresh it occasionally. And uh, at, a tolerant, at a level of tolerances that were really unknown. Uh, people often ask about the, the cost overruns for James Webb. And uh, while they're challenging, and certainly one can point to mistakes that were made along the way, it is very difficult to know exactly how much something will cost that's never, ever been built before. And whenever you face a challenge that you need to fix or a problem, 
Um, I have tremendous admiration for the engineers and technicians who overcame all of those hurdles over the last 20 years, uh, but it is an expensive uh, proposition, there's no doubt about it. I can also say that sometimes the uncertainty of funding or the unknown contributions of partner countries or the management and the way such a complex international project gets brought together adds additional cost that doesn't necessarily buy value. But, you know, if, if, um, if someone came to the right group at the beginning and said, we'll give you exactly the amount of money you need for it, you don't need to have reviews, you don't have to do any bureaucracy, um, you should do reviews that you think you need to do technically, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how much the telescope would have really, really, really cost if it had been done perfectly. But the chances are it wouldn't have been done perfectly because it had never been done before. And it's just very hard to, to value. Um, but I think it has taught us that as we got to these bigger and bigger things, and of course the space game is very different, but we're getting there with ground-based instrumentation too. Um, there's a level of professionalism and a level of redundancy and a level of design checking and rechecking and triple checking and management of thousands of people who cannot co be co-located and how you design interfaces and manage the design of those interfaces. All of that sort of may sound boring is like management 101, but it gets to be hugely important to the successful completion of a project that's of the billion dollar scale or that's gonna last over decades, which can be more than the professional lifetime of people who come and work on a project and move elsewhere. So I have to say, as things have gotten more complicated, it's gotten harder to involve students in the nitty gritty and um, to, to connect the dots between the technical knowledge you need, between the physics basic research you need, between the computer simulation you need, the software development you need, et cetera. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm answering a very expansive question, but um, I think you, you also asked about computers and their role in this process. Um, that is multifaceted. I would say I still gravitate towards uh, in new instruments where the basic physics technology itself can create an order of magnitude improvement. Mm -hmm. And that's generally not going to be the case for a computer. A computer is going to help me extract very efficiently the absolute amount of information that's really contained in those images and my ability to do Bayesian analysis and to use proper statistical inference which I have to tell you has grown by orders of magnitude since I started as a student. I published papers doing things uh, 20 years ago that I would never get uh, be allowed to do today. Right. Uh, one of our astronomy representatives for the Michigan uh, uh, Data Science Institute, uh, Chris Miller, is a real expert in some of these statistical techniques. And uh, Oleg uh, uh, teaches a course in uh, computational astrophysics using techniques that I could have only dreamed about in the early 90s. But now, yes, you have to use uh, this kind of state-of-the-art uh, approach to extracting information. And I guess my feeling is that software development has saved us orders of magnitude in time, just absolutely in time. Uh, techniques have saved us factors of two and three in our ability to really pull things out. You know, you can't make a source appear in the detector if it's not there, but computers can help you very accurately know what your real errors are. And that is a huge boost to the field in terms of doing better science and hypothesis testing. But there is still a role 
for a new solid state material that can detect photons at a rate two or three times more efficiently than another one. And because the observations tend to go as the square of the, uh, the signal to noise goes as the square of the exposure time, if I can improve things by a factor of three, that turns into an order of magnitude savings on the telescope time. And that's a big, big deal. And I get very, very excited about helping make those leaps go forward. Uh, so compared to before, when we we're talking about citizen science and people using this transit method where they can see the light curves on the internet and kind of locate where those are for the, as the exoplanet passes in front of the host star, uh, what other techniques do scientists like yourself or other astronomers uh, use to detect these exoplanets? And like, to what accuracy can we detect these wobbles? And what are like, what's the future of exoplanet discovery and studying their atmospheres? So the, the first thing was radial velocity. Um, that was the first discovery in, in 1995. And that was uh, done with a spectrograph that had um, an accuracy of a few meters per second, uh, whereas one meter per second is about human walking speed. That's about how fast we can measure with our Doppler radar gun uh, the speed of a star as it is moving in response to the dance of the orbit of the two bodies around their common center of mass. So as the planet moves one way, the star is moving another. So we're indirectly detecting a planet using radial velocity, um, like your Doppler radar gun if you get a speeding ticket on a highway. Uh, the transit technique, as you mentioned, is the diminution of the light as the planet goes in front of the star. And that, to, to, to detect an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star, you would need a spectrograph with a spectral resolving power for radial velocity that was about 10 centimeters per second. So a full order of magnitude better than human walking speed. The transit technique to detect the shadow of an Earth passing in front of the surface of a sun, you need about 10 or 20 parts per million in the accuracy of the photometry. So you're measuring brightness changes at about 10 parts per million. That is really hard. It's practically impossible to do from the ground, which is why space-based observatories like Kepler, mm -hmm. like the uh, TESS mission, and like the recently launched Swiss CHAOPS mission are done in space without the, uh, corrupt, the, the corrupting effects of the Earth's atmosphere and other special techniques to get around weather and clouds and things to do precision photometry. Um, so hopefully, starting now and going forward, we'll, be, we'll have the accuracy uh, uh, to measure the radial velocity shift of Earth-like planets around sun-like stars, but then we need to wait for the orbits. So an Earth-like planet in, in, at 1AU takes a year to go around its star, and you probably want at least a few orbits before you can say you've confidently detected something. So the technology is there sort of starting now and going forward around bright stars, we should be able to start seeing those discoveries accelerate again. Um, the transit stuff is just going wild with the space-based observatories and ground-based complementary ones, too. I do direct imaging. And this, again, comes from my heritage or my background in infrared astronomy and studying star and planet formation. Um, in the mid to late 90s, we were pushing to find brown dwarfs in star-forming regions. These are objects below the minimum mass uh, where eventually uh, a star can fuse hydrogen into helium in its core and have its own nuclear furnace, an energy producing source so, so that it can shine. Uh, brown dwarfs are stars that are too small of a mass so that they can't convert enough potential energy into internal energy in their core to get the temperature high enough 
to sort of kickstart those nuclear reactions going. Mm -hmm. um, and that has to do with nuclear physics and the gamma uh, curve and so on. But um, to try to keep me on track here, um, we were looking for brown dwarfs and say maybe trying to find a 10 million year old 30 Jupiter mass brown dwarf in star forming regions. The technology to do that is not so different from trying to take an image of a one Jupiter mass planet closer to its host star. So I was kind of on that track and it was an easy pivot for me. Uh, what has revolutionized the ability to do direct imaging, which is looking at faint things near bright things, is adaptive optics. This is the ability to take out wavefront errors that are introduced by the Earth's atmosphere and try to get back those perfect plane parallel waves of wavefront from our star and planet and uh, do that by modulating the optics in our system so that we can reach the ultimate diffraction limit of a telescope, the so-called Raleigh limit, which is proportional to the wavelength of light you're observing divided by the diameter of the telescope, lambda over d, as we call it. And um, the ability to do that can get you, for an eight meter telescope around typical nearby stars that are young enough that we could still see planets from the glow of their gravitational contraction, we can probably do that around at about 30 AU, maybe 20 AU, maybe 10 AU for the very nearest systems. The nearer by my targets are to my telescope, the better the physical resolution is of how fine I can resolve things. Now, if I told you I could see a Jupiter mass planet at 20 times an AU, which is the mean distance between the Earth and the Sun, um, you know, I wouldn't see Jupiter that way. Our Jupiter is at about 5 AU five times the mean Earth-Sun distance. So if there was a Jupiter-mass planet at about 20 AU around a star at 50 parsecs at about 30 million years, I could see it. I could take a picture of that thing. So what we're doing is designing experiments using state-of-the-art adaptive optics on the world's largest telescopes to try to resolve Jupiter-mass planets around Sun-like stars. And so far, we've detected about a dozen of them. And that's not as many as the 3,000 uh, plus, uh, 4,000 plus planets that have been discovered from transit. So we're kind of the uh, poor relations here. Uh, we have not detected so many objects. But what we are useful in doing is placing upper limits or measurements of the occurrence rate of planets at large orbital separations. Mm -hmm. And what we have found in those kinds of studies is that planets that are really, really, so imagine that the star is here on my left hand, planets that are really close to the sun are there, but not so common. And as I get out to distances of two, three, and four AU, that seems to be about the peak in the orbital distribution. And then we start to see it falling off again, which is bad for me because I don't get to detect a lot of planets, but we design our experiments to measure that distribution. And just in the last two years, we've been able to point out that the peak in the distribution of gas giants around sun-like stars, M dwarfs, and I'm starting to also believe intermediate mass stars, is all about three times the mean Earth-Sun distance. And that's kind of a new discovery of a new fact about the distributions of exoplanets, which we couldn't have done without direct imaging. More mm -hmm. fun is to detect something. And if we detect something, we can take spectra of those planets and analyze their atmospheres. That allows us to guess the temperature. That allows us to look for the atomic and molecular fingerprints of different species in the spectra of those bodies, and then look at their composition to learn how much carbon 
nitrogen and oxygen they have in their atmospheres. And that is another handle. The, the gross demographics also should be a predictive outcome of planet formation theory, but also what planets are made of is a powerful constraint on planet formation theory. And ultimately, I just really want to know how planets are formed. How common are they of different types? And again, ultimately, we'd like to know how common potentially habitable worlds are elsewhere in the universe. Mm -hmm. And I know you mentioned earlier that there is a lot that goes into uh, funding different projects. Um, one of the things that we found was the Decatur survey. So um, essentially, it's kind of a committee that overviews and distributes a lot of the funds that's like overlooked by NASA and the National Academy of Sciences. So how, how does organizations that distribute funds like the Decatur survey um, impact the research that you're doing and how can it um, change the, the field of astronomy and uh, what's more prevalent and what's not? So let, let me clarify. Um, mm -hmm. The National Academy runs the Decadal Survey and this uh, is requested by Congress and the document that is produced in the end goes to both NASA and NSF. It is a plan. It is a, a recommendation. It does not give out funding but it tries to set priorities from the community. And generally, the administrations that um, execute, and the Congress that appropriates the money, and the executive that tries to execute the appropriations, uh, tries to listen to the recommendations of the Decadal Survey. Um, and that's a tradition that goes back to the 1960s. Astronomy um, did its first uh, Decadal Survey back then, I think we're on our seventh now that we're doing now, we tend to do them every 10 years. I think the first one was called the Field Report from George Field who led it. And this wasn't generally done by other um, disciplines at the time. And by the 80s, 90s and zeros, other disciplines got online and decided that this was actually a really good idea to let the community kind of bubble up its own plan, give it to the government and then hopefully the government would execute the most important parts of it. The government can and does sometimes disagree with the survey. They try not to, but there can be reasons down the line where they are unable to, for whatever reason, maybe they don't have enough money or whatnot, so they need some guidance, but they can't always follow it to the letter. Um, I'll also just point out two things. Our whole national science funding infrastructure only arose out of the ashes of World War II. And there really wasn't a thing like government-funded research before World War II. Um, people saw the value of it in trying to bring the economy of the world back. And obviously, there were um, researchers that were related to defense that became part of that research complex as well. The other key thing that was before your lifetime was the Apollo program, and before mine too. I was barely alive when people landed on the moon. But the extraordinary amount of science funding that started really our space program in the 60s is unparalleled. And if you extrapolated the rate of growth of science funding from the 1960s forward to today, we would totally have to be mining asteroids to have any sort of productivity to fund a research enterprise like that. I mean, it was mm -hmm. just off the charts. So it had to flatten out. And what I try to remind people as we go through each decadal survey is there really is no normal of science funding. We're all just sort of figuring this out in the last 70, 80 years. And different cultures and societies will place different priorities on different things. And that's reasonable and right and good that they do that. 
And we, as scientists, will have things we want to do, and we think they're aspirational, and we think that they can inspire. We think that they can help attract people to science and education, which is healthy for all of us. And uh, they might even have unintended practical benefits down the road, which we all benefit from, which we can come back to in a minute. But the survey as it is, is constructed by a plan that NASA makes with the NSF and DOE and other funding agencies. And they collaborate with the National Academy of Sciences, which is this select group of self-selecting people, um, which is uh, um, dom dominated by the um, older, more accomplished, more senior members of the community, which by the way, is not the most diverse and most representative body mm -hmm. uh, in the field. And they get together and make a plan for the survey. They pick chairs of the survey, and then the survey chairs get to then pick their central committee that's gonna help them execute the survey. And then there's several subcommittees that are formed on different science areas or on different uh, wavelength regimes or different techniques. And all of these sub panels are then populated Reports are received. There's a call that goes out for white papers. This is a, a funny term, and I had looked up the origin of it, um, why they're called white papers. Um, uh, and I can't remember the answer off the top of my head, but I think it's on Wikipedia. And people write these kind of policy documents. I, I study exoplanets, and so we want to explain to the decadal survey how important it is to study demographics, as I was explaining before, the distribution functions of these planets populations. And so we write a paper about how important that is for all of science and for exoplanets in particular, and what capabilities and facilities we need to make major progress. And we're given rules like the paper has to be due on uh, 2019, you know, August 3rd, and it can't be more than 12 pages long, and it has to be in this format. And so hundreds and hundreds of these white papers are written, and they go to these panels, and they're read. And then the panels can invite different groups in to pitch ideas or to uh, propose projects. And then each of those sub-panels writes a sub-report, which then goes to the central committee. And it's a huge, huge effort. It involves dozens to hundreds of people and literally tens of thousands of members of the community involved in writing white papers and different things. Town halls are held um, at the American Astronomical Society meetings, which are not happening face-to-face -face now, but certainly happened in, in January in, in Hawaii. And so people, they try to keep people informed. They try to gather feedback on process. There are panels about the uh, state of the profession so that uh, uh, people have an opportunity to complain about the unhealthy uh, uh, elements in our profession, how they feel like it doesn't really promote healthy work lives or, or, or family-friendly work environments or uh, that makes it difficult for underrepresented populations to really get into the field and, and fully contribute in the most important way. Uh, uh, so there are lots of voices that come into the decadal survey, but ultimately it comes down to sort of one 150 page report, which has a series of recommendations and they can't touch on everything and they certainly can't get everything right. They also have independent costing estimates for all major projects because they don't wanna, you know, suppose you had a trillion dollar astronomy budget for the next decade, well, you can do everything. You don't have to make tough choices. But what the 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 charge to the survey is generally to rank order things, uh, yeah. and not to say you know have to fund this, don't fund that. They're really just meant to prioritize things because mm -hmm. we don't really know how the budgets are going to go. Down the road.